You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Conservator. Conservator. There you go. All right, perfect. Welcome to episode nine of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Conrad Yannan and David Howe. Tonight's guest, Raven Todd De Silva, is an archaeologist and conservator who just finished her Master's of Science with a focus on conservation. She graduated with distinction from the University of Toronto with a Bachelor of Arts. She runs a very popular Instagram and YouTube channel called Dig It With Raven and is an excellent science communicator. Our co-hosts are familiar with conservation and curation from an American theoretical stance, and we are really interested to hear more about European conservation and European archaeology from Raven. All right, Raven, um, if you don't mind uh, introducing who you are real quick and uh, where you are currently. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, good evening, guys. Um, thanks for having me on. Hello. Uh, hi, guys. Um, so I am currently in Amsterdam and I just graduated a week ago, essentially, from my master's of conservation and restoration of cultural heritage from the University of Amsterdam. And I specialized in the conservation of ceramics, glass, and stone, focusing mainly on archaeological objects. And so my bachelor's was more archaeology, ancient civ-based, moved over to Europe after a quarter-life crisis, and ended up with a master's of science afterwards. So it turned out okay, I guess. And yeah, now I'm hosting a YouTube channel and an Instagram page based on archaeology, history, conservation, where I try and kind of give a kind of like an online free course on the basics of archaeology, making it accessible for everybody. Well, that's awesome, actually. And like, sorry, I didn't mean to say actually, but what what I'm trying to say is congratulations on getting your master's is the words I'm trying to say, because that's a huge, (laughs) huge thing to do. Um, how do you, how do you feel? Um, not as excited as I thought I would. (laughs) Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, We, we understand that. Mm -hmm. Staring into the abyss of what life is after school. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The existential crisis is settling in quite nicely, which is always great. It it doesn't end. Uh, I think I'm, I'm two years out. Connor's three years out and Carlton, you're, few months out i'm still in school unlike you two i pursued a phd thank you very much so don't try to throw me under the bus with that master's nonsense i thought we were over that i was just saying that you, you got your master's but yeah so what made you want to go overseas to, to europe if you don't mind like us asking that as yeah. opposed to staying over here in the states or in canada well the biggest draw for me was that there aren't many schools for conservation in canada There's only one university that has a full-on program. In the States, you have a bunch. They're really great, but they're also very expensive for international students, which is no fun. And then, yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. And then I can't work over there either. So I was looking over in Europe because I have an EU passport. And it's much cheaper to come to school here. And they have really, really good programs and a lot of – it's a lot more central if you're studying more – 
you know, European archaeology, ancient Mediterranean archaeology. It's a little bit easier to go here and you have more access to the things that you want to study. I think our last guest, uh, Irina Bachi, was she also went to the University of Toronto and was saying that it was really difficult to find a school that allows that funds like foreign students in the United States. So I get that's why you went over there. That was one of the reasons. Yes. I first went to Germany because for tuition there, it's only about 200 euros a semester. Whoa. What? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. What am um, I doing so that, at I know, Colorado? Right? Jesus. <laughs> Old as cheap. What are you talking about? Uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But they also have really good programs over here for what I needed to study. And they have a lot more uh, opportunity than in Canada. Like, and there's only one school in Canada that, that I could have gone to. And the program wasn't really focused on where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So I kind of moved over to Germany, did an internship there, realized maybe I didn't want to spend the next five years speaking German in class. And so I moved over to Amsterdam and they have an amazing program, which is a direct master's instead of doing another bachelor's. So I kind of just kind of found my way through trial and error, really. Um, as a as a person who suffered through a master's degree, um, did you have to write a, a thesis as part of it or is it is it a little different? Uh, no, I had to write a thesis uh, in our second year. We have a four-month thesis project, and I did mine on um, – so with the conservation department, it has to be a little bit more science-based, essentially, so very diagnostic. And they found these pre-dynastic, uh, early dynastic bowls from ancient Egypt, from one of the antiquities museums here, that had these very curious black spots on them. And my entire thesis was essentially, what are the black spots? So it's not the most exciting um, thesis, but it was, it, it ended up okay. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Mm-hmm. What are the black spots? Manganese dendrites. Oh. Mm-hmm. So they're um, like these okay. pseudo fossils, essentially. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There's some shirt out here that has like this weird blue, like speckling to it. And it like, it, maybe it has something to do with that too, but that's... It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah there's a shirt that has uh, dendritic inclusions is what they call it. It's pretty diagnostic. Um, yeah, they look like they're growing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're little, mm-hmm. little, little fossils, like you were saying. Little, are they sea, seashells? No, they're just, um, they're pseudo fossils, essentially. So how they grew is that uh, the burial site that they were in, they were, all the bowls were found in tombs. And it was a very wet site, uh, like as a lot of flooding from the Nile from what I was looking at with the spatial analysis. And it seems that there was a super saturated solution of manganese. And as the water evaporated or left, the manganese kind of stayed and formed on the bowls and kind of grew in these fern, almost mold-like patterns. Oh, that's really interesting. And kind of going off that, what made you get into archaeology and, and, you know, keep going through school and ultimately into higher education? Uh, I've really always been into archaeology. I was that nerd in the library when I was like four or five years old, running around getting the books on ancient Egypt and the pyramids and getting the, you know, the movies about Bellerophon and the Pegasus, all that crap. Um, (laughs) It was really bad. And I was just always really into history. I had some amazing teachers in high school that really kept that passion alive. They were really like my, my best teachers I had were history teachers. 
And so it kind of kept it going throughout the whole thing. And I graduated my bachelor's. I got a job in a museum for about two years, realized this is not where I want to be. And I wanted to do more hands-on stuff, uh, get back to my roots. And so that's how I ended up in Europe. Then you're from Portugal. Is that right? I was born in Canada. Canada. Okay. Yeah. I think you had said that, but you have a, you have an EU passport you had said? I do. Yeah. So my dad was born in Portugal and they're just throwing them away over there. So I just had to show that, you know, he was born there and I'm technically sort of Portuguese and they just gave me one. That's dope. Yeah, I feel like I cheated the system a little bit, but... Yeah, I need to figure out how I could do that and go over there to school. <laughs> well, uh, in the Netherlands, we have the Dutch-American Friendship Treaty because you guys helped out so much during World War II. And you guys can move here a lot easier than the rest of the world can. Oh. Just as a fun little note for you. And even uh, international student fees are cheaper than American student fees. Huh. I don't think I don't think they want us to know no, that. No, I almost went to yeah. Utrecht yeah. Uh, for my PhD. Oh, yeah. And I regret that decision. Well, I don't regret that decision. Um, <laughs> I love seeing Boulder, <laughs> but like there was a moment in my life where I almost went to Utrecht uh, for my PhD, but I found it to be leaving the United States to study United States Great Plains archaeology just did not seem like the uh, best idea. No. So that's why I stayed in the Great Plains. But anyways, since you're familiar with both the Canadian and European system, what are the differences in the education systems between those two areas? It's a very broad question. The biggest thing that I can think of, because you know the European education, sorry, the European education system is so different from country to country, right? So I only really have the knowledge for um, Dutch and German ones, and Canadian uh, education systems also vary really greatly throughout the provinces. But the biggest difference I noticed, especially with a bachelor's, was that I did not have to write a bachelor's thesis to graduate from my first degree. And here you really always have to write a bachelor's thesis and the degrees are only three years long. That was the biggest difference for me there. Uh, Okay. Wow. I think I would have had a hard time doing that at the end of my bachelor's degree, writing a a master or writing a thesis. Yeah. Was it like a like a independent research project that you had to do as part of it uh for the from what i've heard from friends that have done their bachelor's here yeah there's kind of like their own it's a, it's a real thesis essentially just not the bachelor's level and then they're they can be up to twenty thousand words oh my god yeah <laughs> it's daunting 22 yeah. year old me would have not done that <laughs> oh no, exactly right like oh my gosh and like my thesis was only sixteen thousand words so i don't even know how they like were even able to do that at you know, four years ago for me, like when I was 22, it was really scary. Um, so that was the biggest difference that I noticed. The grading is also very different as well as the kind of course structure. I find the classes are smaller here, even though it's, I'm a little biased because my program was only accepting six people every two years. So that's very small. But other classes I had seen as well are also a little bit more on the smaller side where at the University of Toronto, I was having classes with 300, 400 people in them, sometimes 2,000. So it can quite vary um, that way as well. That's really interesting. I had some classes in my my undergrad that was like, were those huge like entry level ones that are like 150 people and you, you know, you don't even know the professor because you're in the very back of this huge lecture hall. 
And I think I would appreciate more of those kind of uh, closer interactions with your professors, um, having that ratio of students to teachers being much better. I, I do better in that situation. And I think a lot of people do as well. Oh, definitely. I've seen that uh, a lot of people here have a much closer relationship with their professors and their teachers than I would or other people I know did back in Canada. Um, so that was really interesting to, to see. You actually kind of treat them more as a colleague in the Netherlands. In other countries, no. That, that's a big no-no. I've learned that in Belgium. You have to treat them very differently in Belgium. Uh, I got in trouble. And then... Uh, then uh, it's kind of a more of a kind of a, more of an open conversation that you have here. So you are able to go further into ideas and express concerns, kind of go your own way a little bit more than the trajected lesson plan, for example. Yeah. Like a Socratic dialogue more kind of thing. Yeah. Like engaging in conversation. And I think that, I don't know, I really enjoyed that about grad school as well. I don't know if David and Carlton, you, you did that as well as you're just you're fully engaged and you're you know having conversations as opposed to just reading rote yeah like i i liked especially from going from undergrad to grad school people in graduate school were there because they wanted to study that subject more so the conversation was always more like engaged and involved whereas in undergrad you had people that kind of had to take the class and just wanted to get the grade and leave so it was definitely a different like a, like a different uh, social structure, I guess, and how it went. But so it sounds like Europe is just better <laughs> for college. <laughs> better in a lot of ways, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, we're going to stick with that for now. Yeah, I'm just like, I can't even get my students to read the syllabus, much less discuss anything important in class. Um, so like, it's just absolutely brutal in terms of having to sit in front of like 30 students who are taking intro to archaeology as a, a, a gen ed science and try to talk to them about the consequences of proliferating different migration theories in the United States. And they're just sitting at me blank, blank faced. I'm like, oh, sweet. Guess no one did the reading. Big surprise. So let me just kind of tell you why Salutrian is probably not the best thing in the world. <laughs> no, definitely. I've seen that for sure. And I find too that the discussions that you have here are less competitive than in North America. Everyone in North America from my own seminar classes was always trying to one up the other or dispel someone else's opinion. And here it was just kind of like a really nice, open, friendly conversation. Yeah, that was David. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> You're always, always trying to undercut me, telling oh. me I was stupid. <laughs> I don't. It's definitely no. inadvertent. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it is, it is competitive, at least at least from what I saw in, in, in grad school. Yeah. Connor and I went through the same cohort and would just look at each other across the hall or the, I guess the table. I'd be like, what is happening right now? We're talking about some like in-depth theory thing we didn't understand. I think that's what you're referring to, but <laughs> yeah, got Exactly. Yeah. But we loved it. Um, and I, I guess as a last question, what um, did you do for field work at all? If you did any in your undergraduate I wasn't able to do much field work in my undergraduate because it was so expensive uh, to do. Okay. Yeah, to do a, like a summer field school, especially in the areas that I was studying. You know, they always had one in Jordan or in uh, Crete. It was, you know, $4,000 for the summer for the tuition. Plus, then you had to pay for your flight over there, everything else, and you couldn't work for the whole summer. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, I, I was never able to actually 
do field work during my my undergrad. But since moving over here, um, well, since graduating, I did some field work in Macedonia. I kind of, when I had my job, I used my vacation days to do some field work. And then I, when I moved over here in the Netherlands, once you pay tuition, it's covering the entire year. So if you want to go on a field school after you know June when school ends, it's still covered. All you have to do is pay for your flight. Oh, which oh my god, super cool! Yeah, I think yeah. my field school was like six grand just to go to Nashville. Yeah, <laughs> so expensive! Oh my gosh, it's ridiculous. And so it's it's so much more accessible over here. So uh, during my master's last year, I went to Italy in the uh, Puglia region. And then this summer I went to Thessaly in Greece and I dug there, which was really great to actually finally get to do that field work that I'd always wanted to do. Yeah. Do you have a preference for field work or lab work or a mix of both? So I really love being out in the field. It's something I love getting my hands dirty, being the, the physicality of it, you know, getting that pickaxe in your hand and just going out the dirt for eight hours. Um, that was really nice to do and the camaraderie you get there in the, in the lab, you know, as a conservator, I'm always in the lab. So maybe for me, just getting out in the field for field season is just a good break and it's kind of my moment to go crazy. But uh, I do prefer the field work sometimes just to kind of feel like I've accomplished something instead of looking at a minuscule retouch that I've been doing for the last eight hours. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way because in my job, I work in the CRM industry and I do mapping. Um, and I, so I sit at a computer all day, but I really enjoy those moments of when I'm able to get outside and, and do work and not just stare at a computer blankly for hours on end. No, oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. And on that note, somehow the Royal Mounted Police have found us after last week's syrup and moose jokes. And we have to sort this out really quick. Uh, we will be right back. Hopefully. Welcome back for segment two of episode nine of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with our guest, Raven. And uh, so real quick, Raven, like what are you most interested in in terms of archaeology and conservation? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, for me, I'm like study wise, geographically, I'm a big Egyptologist for sure. You nice. know, live and breathe till I die. That's one of the main reasons I went to the University of Toronto was to actually learn how to read hieroglyphs big nerd. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I did, my first field school was mosaics in Macedonia. I did uh, conservation documentation of Roman mosaics there. And I thought that was pretty great because you're doing conservation on site. So actual like archeological site conservation, it was a, a big thing. It's not, it's kind of the best mix of both field work and lab work just in one spot. So you're outside, but you're still doing the lab work, which is sort of like the perfect thing for me. And that's really uh, a big interest that I have lately now that I'm able to maybe go and find a job. Uh, if there's one available, then I can, I would love to try and kind of push more into being on site and being like an on-site conservator for the structures themselves. Cause that for me is the biggest thing, you know, stabilizing the walls, making sure Everything is, you know, profiled, detailed properly, but also conserved because it's all exposed now, right? That's the whole problem with archaeology. You're destroying everything as yeah. you're digging it. So I would love to be the one to kind of step in there and make sure everything is A-OK. So I imagine you've done field work in Egypt, right? I haven't. Oh, my gosh. No, not yet. I really want to. I'm 
trying to find field work that's available in Egypt. It's really difficult to find people that are willing to take uh, me and or unless you're paying for it, which is another thing I have to save up for. So if anyone's listening and they want to bring me to Egypt, I would love you <laughs> so much because it's still like a dream I would have. I would do anything. I'll just be a wheelbarrow, you know, dumper. I'll just dump dirt. I don't really care as long as I get to Egypt to actually dig. It'd be great. I actually know a guy um, who's actually going to be a guest in two weeks, Dr. David Anderson. His wife is an Egyptologist, and they've popped me to go do field work in Egypt. Um, they just have to put your name on a list like a year in advance for uh, the country, and I will definitely let him know. Oh, my God. Yes, please. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you so, okay. Yeah, I'm very excited now. Okay. You can read hieroglyphs though, right? Well, yeah, but you know, you can't really sight read hieroglyphs, but I, I did a, a whole intensive on Middle Egyptian. So that's so cool. Well, yeah. from the historical documentary, The Mummy, I'm pretty <laughs> sure Phoebe is able just to sight read hieroglyphs. Like, isn't that how the whole thing happens? That's another one that you should do oh, for, yeah. for your that's, YouTube. That's November. We're doing that one in November. We've already planned. Nice. Oh, Perfect. Oh I'm excited. Yeah, it's so much fun. Um, okay. yeah, you cannot, you cannot sight read hieroglyphs. That's a big no, no, but, uh, I gotcha. want to do a whole video on that as well. Just kind of talking about ancient languages, like a whole series on it and how to understand them, sort of approach them that way. Perfect. But you do have field work experience and it's in Macedonia, correct? Yes. Uh, Macedonia was my first. And then I did some field work. I did more lab field work in Italy. And then this summer I did field work in Greece. That's awesome. What what kind of site uh, did you work on in Macedonia? It was a late Roman site, um, so kind of early Christian, and it was uh, a site. It was a site called Stobi, and it's the Roman capital of Macedonia. So it's like their big, you know, archaeological site there in the country. You can even see some of the mosaic images, the big peacock mosaic on their currency. So they're very proud of this site. And the Balkan Heritage Field School runs both uh, an archaeology excavation course there. They have the mosaic conservation course, and they also have a ceramic and glass conservation course there. So there are, you know, two or three weeks and... It's a really interesting site, but they've been digging there forever and you can actually go and see like it's a live dig. There's professional archaeologists there all the time willing to interact with you. Everything has been exposed. They have, you know, an amphitheater. It was a it was a huge city and it was really amazing to be able to kind of be on that site for the two weeks there because you're just living 500 meters from where you're working. That's awesome. I saw when I was in Europe this summer, when I was in Croatia, I got to see a couple of the Roman sites. Of course, I didn't work there. I was just kind of there on, on vacation on my way back from Ukraine. But like to see those amphitheaters was just absolutely astonishing. And to see Roman archaeology, I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. Oh, yeah. No, it's really cool to see it for why well, that was my second major was Roman archaeology. So to actually, you know, kind of be on site, seeing everything that you're studying was you know kind of very it made everything worth it i guess you know oh absolutely like i know here in the states we learn about greco-roman history from a young age so to actually be able to see it for yourself after only seeing in pictures and heard about in textbooks was definitely like a really in in the realest sense an awesome experience like that it inspired awe yeah i was literally just gonna piggyback on that and say when i was in rome last year like just having read all that in a book as a kid and like seeing pictures of it and then just walking around downtown Rome, I was just like, what? like in awe. Cause it's, 
everything's just so old and cool. Whereas like here we have like a Walgreens and uh, like a rundown Seven Eleven, and that's that's old for me. But <laughs> it's like it's nice over there to like just I could like eat like pasta or whatever I was doing at this restaurant, and then like you could just see the Coliseum right there. It was cool. I'm I'm done nerding out, but. Well, not to Rome, you know, everywhere you walk, there's something there, you know, which is amazing. Yeah. If you, uh, David, if you ever see an old rundown blockbuster, you let me know because I want to, you send me photos of that bad boy. Uh, there is one on Long Island somewhere. It's probably been bought up by now, but irrelevant. But yeah, I'll, I'll get you some pictures. <laughs> I need some historic documentation, some little uh, photography. Yeah. There was one in uh, Captain Marvel, actually, but uh, you know, it was in the time but uh, irrelevant, Carlton. <laughs> Sorry about that. So um, so you did field work, Roman side Macedonia, which is awesome. And then lab work in Italy. What did that consist of in terms of like, what were the artifacts that you were curating? What culture was it? And kind of like this setting for, um, was it like a lab field school or just you were hired on? It was a field school through the University of Amsterdam. So for all of the archaeology students that need their field school credits, they went there. But a classmate of mine and I, we didn't know what to do for the summer for our elective. And we just kind of emailed the guy who was in charge of it. And we said, hey, you know, we're conservation students and that we would love to just come and help out with the site. No one, they've never had a conservator on site. They've been digging there for 25 years. And so what we were doing there was, well, first of all, the lab wasn't really a lab. We were in a little corner of an old school that we were staying in. We had little you know, kids' desks all set up for our lab space. And we were cleaning and putting together all of the special finds. So anything that needed to be glued together, anything important that needed special attention that they didn't want to give the students with, you know, the really rough toothbrushes, they came to us. And then we were doing that for two weeks there. And it was a, it was another Roman site, but a little bit earlier than the one in Macedonia. So is that how it normally goes um, at sites is you have, um, I don't think it's super common here in, the, in North America, at least from the stuff I've done is that you have someone who's familiar with conservation techniques on sites because we don't really have curation people who end up like actually being out on site. We ultimately send our curation stuff to someone who and they curate it. But it seems like in some places they have actual conservators, curators on, on site. Um, sort of. So when I was in uh, Greece, for example, they had the special conservators that were from the government, right? They were kind of employed as the conservators of this region. So if there was anything that needed to be uh, properly handled in the dirt, like on site, if it was in situ, they would have to be called in to advise and make sure that everything was handled properly. So well, it's not normal to have a conservator on site normally oh, there because of funding. Yeah. They always have fine processing people or people that are sort of in charge of the fine processing. So during the afternoon curation, so you guys call it curation over there. Is that what I'm, I had to Google this when you were talking about it before, because I would, we don't call it curation. So I was really confused with that at first. It depends on like what industry you're in. So like mm -hmm. I'm a, technically a collections manager, but I'll call it curation. It, it, honestly, it's just like, it depends on where you are, but curation is like the... I guess the technical term for like the subfield, if that makes sense. 
Okay. Okay. So it's because when I was looking it up, uh, it, it seems a lot of like either collections management or preventive conservation, essentially, right? Yeah. Preventive yeah. conservation sounds way cooler. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, we do have somebody, usually someone that is in charge of making sure all the fines are processed correctly, put in the correct spot, numbered correctly, and kind of stored as well as they can be at the time. Uh, it's not always someone who's employed. It can be you know, a volunteer, but like a, a higher up student who has a lot of experience that way, things like that. But there is usually someone dedicated to make sure that there's a special process happening and that nothing really gets lost in the mix. Oh, that's that's really cool. And I like that, at least you mentioned earlier, that they're like state sponsored or locally sponsored. It, that could avoid a lot of problems that we have in like uh, the cultural resource management industry and in uh, North America, where we have people who just kind of don't use proper conservation techniques to get stuff out of the field or blow through bone beds and, and stuff like that. And having someone on on staff and someone who could help with that would be would be a huge help, but I think it would be, I'm not sure that would completely work in our field, but it would be super interesting. I really like the principle of it. Yeah, it's a little bit of a difficult thing to to make happen because even with the conservators in Greece, we called them in and they came on a special day and they said, okay, well, we need maybe we'll come back in two weeks to help you with this one thing that we needed a little bit more care to take out of the ground. And then once they left, I kind of said like to our field supervisor, I'm like, I'm a conservator. I can get this out for you. And then they were very happy that I could do it and nice. kind of step in without having to wait because it was, you know, this little layer that we needed to get rid of earlier than two weeks from now. So I kind of spent the next three days very carefully working away at that. And it was a little bit nicer for them. So they didn't have to wait for it. So you have a lot of experience and you've done a, a lot of work now that you're graduated. Um, with your master's, like what are the fieldwork opportunities for you on the horizon coming up? Uh, so far, nothing really. I'm still trying to come down from the whole handing in the thesis thing, but I am starting to kind of look more into field opportunities that can be that will be available for next field season. Uh, again, if um, the more experience I can get, the better. I would love to go to other parts in. Uh, the Mediterranean or North Africa, Middle East kind of areas, definitely going to, you know, where I studied with my bachelor's, kind of go back to those roots and get more into archaeology because I had my little two years of science and lab fun, but now I want to go back and get dirty a little bit. So I'm still looking if anyone, again, if anyone wants to bring me along for the ride, that'd be great. But other than that, it's, you know, just staring into the abyss of post-grad life, which is always fun. Come join the party. It is, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's fun, but it, it is pretty fun. I wish I could say it gets better, <laughs> but I would most likely be lying. In the States here, we usually like, I mean, I, I'm employed, like I have an archeological job right now and I kind of got it through word of mouth with like a project that I was working on. But for other people, they can go through like Shovelbums, I think it's .org, or archaeologyfieldwork.net. Um, in Europe, are there any networks like that for people like in your position to find archaeological employment? Not really. Like every country, every sort of area has their own specific website. Sure. 
And because there's so many languages in Europe, it's a little bit difficult to find them and navigate through them. So that's kind of a a challenge. You know, like my Dutch is not the best. You know, I can order a beer. I can, you know, ask for directions, but that's pretty much it. The the important things, of course. (laughs) Definitely. But, you know, trying to get a job during, for example, CRM in the Netherlands can be a little bit tricky now for me, right? Because I don't speak the language and it'll be a little sure. difficult. Becoming a freelance conservator in the Netherlands as well, it's already very competitive. And throwing in the fact that I don't speak the language, you know, no one's going to want me over the, the Dutch person, right? So it's one of those things. So right now I'm just kind of working at the job I had to get through school, um, paying off the student debt, which is always fun, and just kind of seeing if there are any more field work opportunities and eventually I'm sure I'll land into something eventually. Uh, But of course I really want to grow my YouTube channel because that I think can kind of become my little baby and maybe be a full-time thing. Who knows if it gets big enough. So that's, I mean, you're killing it. Yeah. It's looking like you're going to end up that way. Yeah. Well, I, I have the time now for it. Right. So now I like, you know, the graduation happened and it's just, full, you know, full speed ahead with the the YouTube channel, making sure I can get content once or even maybe twice a week, maybe come January to make sure it's growing the way I want it to. Well, let's keep the listeners on the edge of their seats and let's take this in the next section. We'll talk about your YouTube channel. Awesome. Okay. So we're back with session three of episode nine of a life in roots podcast with Raven, also known as dig it with Raven, which is your YouTube channel. So I'm going to let you start. Um, Would you like to explain to our listeners who probably haven't seen your channel yet, or if they have, what your channel is about? Yeah, of course. So my channel, I guess I started it almost two and a half years ago now. And it's a kind of a a public access channel, I would say, for archaeology, art conservation, um, history, like visiting historical sites and museums, things like that, to kind of make it accessible for everybody. And I first started it because, well, I was living in Germany and I had no social life, so I had to be productive somehow. And I realized that when I was a bachelor student with archaeology, there were all of these things that I would have loved to have a quick little YouTube video about to explain it better or to understand it. So when I I remember going to school and not having this resource and I realized, well, I could be that resource. I can explain things in a way that can be a little bit better understood and so on and to make it maybe more exciting and fun for people to get into. So people that are maybe unsure about getting into the field or are afraid of the science behind it or anything like that, I can make it more exciting and not so stuffy, or as I call it on my channel, you know, making it, make it sexy. Right. I had a uh, teacher from, he was from New Zealand. He was one of my history teachers and he taught history of Hellenistic Greece, the most fascinating class I've ever taken. And this is an aside, but he would call everything sexy as like, and he would say it into being like right at the end of a sentence. And he'd be like, sexy. And he'd say it. And it's just like stuck with me. And when people say like, I got to make archeology span sexy, I hear it in that guy's voice. Cause it, it, it's honestly the truth. Cause there's a lot of people that talk about archeology span that are great archeologists, but it's the most dry thing I've ever heard, or it's just 45 minutes of a camera shaking in the background. And, you know, it's just not, 
accessible. So I really like that you use the word accessible too, because it's it's really hard to find that. Uh, so I commend you for doing that. It's it's super good. Uh, I know Carlton and Connor and I were a huge fan of your recent video. Uh, yeah. Carlton, do you want to take that on? I have to say you like beat us to the punch. Cause that, those videos that you have produced, I, for years, as in the, and when I was an undergrad, I had the same thought about having a YouTube channel that talks about archeology span in an accessible and fun way. And we've always kept our eye on it. And then over this past summer, I think is when we ran into you, we kind of, ha- I had this realization of like, we got beat to the punch. <laughs> but not in like a bad way because everything you've done on YouTube and your Instagram, which is also called Dig It With Raven, is really well done and really informative and really engaging. And the, your last video, it wasn't your last video, the Indiana Jones one? Yeah, yeah, it was my last one. That was gold. <laughs> For our listeners, it's archaeologists react to Indiana Jones and it's... Is it the last? It's not the last crusade, right? It's uh, no, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Lost Ark. The, like, yeah. The, yeah, the good one. And you did that with a friend of yours, right? Yes, I did a friend, my friend uh, Jude, and I will not pronounce her last name because I know I will mess it up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she is also an archaeologist. She's an osteologist, just finished her master's as well. And yeah, we were realizing that everyone's doing these reaction videos and when we're, you know, talking about archaeology to people that have only experienced it through popular culture, it can become a bit of a headache or very, you know, misunderstood. So we're like, well, let's do one ourselves, you know? So we made some food, very themed food for raiders and uh, themed alcohol. And we just kind of had a really fun time watching it and pretending essentially to watch it for the first time, but through the archaeology lens. And it's, it was really fun. What's your favorite Mm -hmm. segment from that video? Oh, gosh. Probably half the stuff that I cut out, and that's not actually in the video. (laughs) (laughs) See how it goes. Yeah, I I made a a behind-the-scenes thing for my Patreon, and that's when I had the most fun kind of going through all of our bloopers and just... Uh, every time, you know, they were eating dates, we'd be like, eat a date. And we'd eat a date. We'd dip it in the tahini and, we'd, you know, pretend we're there with them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to convince Jude to dress up as Marion for Halloween because she could make a really good one. Things like that. But just kind of going through it and screaming at the television about, you know, ruining all of the archaeolog- ar- archaeological sites that, you know, he's going through and just destroying everything. It just, it was kind of fun to kind of really finally call that out and explain to people like, this is not okay. So I, there's, I know there's a part in that video where you, you, you and your friend get a little upset over a part. And I think we can insert that to this podcast right about here. I told you not to be premature in your communicator, Berlin. I have so many things about this. Lies! This is not, an exact this is not what a dig looks like! That's not dealing with that is just a chaos, chaotic site. That's, they literally just hired people to dig and they're not, there's no documentation. No order. No order. Where's cameras walking on site? So the video is absolutely phenomenal. And your Instagram is also really engaging and you have a lot of followers. Um, this archaeologist react to Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark has, it was published about two weeks ago and it already has over 2,500 views. And uh, another thing we noticed when, uh, how long ago did you get your logo for uh, um, um, your stuff? I got it just before I launched officially. So that would have been late July, early August, 2017, I believe. So a friend of mine 
she owns a tea store in uh, Canada, but she also used to own with her husband this marketing company and their logo designer or their, their designer had owed them a favor. And so she kind of called in that favor for me and he designed it for me. We, uh, we've been struggling for months now for our own <laughs> logo and we finally got one that we liked. And then we realized how similar it was to yours. I spent hours on this and then I looked at the, <laughs> the like the me version of the cave art that's on that. We all decided, okay, cool. We're going to do cave art. We're going to make it simple. And it's going to be like personalities of us. And then I saw that I'm holding the shovel in the corner and I kind of like took it from this like cave art thing that we found. And then I saw yours today when I was talking to Carl before we did this and I was like, Oh no, <laughs> it's literally your logo. So we can't use it now. So we have to, Oh, sorry guys. You keep, oh, you keep beating us to great ideas <laughs> and we're just trying to play catch up. So now we're like, all right, back to the drawing board. Um, <laughs> Cause that's what happens when the three of us get together to do something. Um, do you outsource to Fiverr at all for things? No, I do everything myself. Um, okay. Yeah. Maybe we need to do that because I've we tried to outsource to Fiverr <laughs> a few times, and that's the benefit of just being, I guess, on your own. Like it's the three of us trying to argue over what we think would work and not work, and then we'll send it to Fiverr. And when you spend twenty dollars to someone to do that on Fiverr to make you a nice logo, you get a twenty dollar <laughs> worth <of> logo back. <laughs> yeah. And it is, yeah, or 36 euro. I don't know what the transfer we, we rate is. We wanted over there. to have a trumpeting mammoth holding a microphone, which we thought would be easy enough. Mm-hmm. But oh my good God. Yeah. The submissions we got, like, I guess we'll, we'll put them in on uh, as links for the episode and throw them up on. Words Instagram. Can't yeah, words can't explain. It was just like <laughs> <laughs> we told them like, hey, can we have like somewhat similar to the Jurassic Park theme, but like not blatant? And the first one we got would have gotten a straight up legal trouble with Universal Studios because that's all he did was copy the India uh, the <laughs> Jurassic Park font. We're like, we can't even down to the colors, we're like we can't use this, dude. No, and we went no. back and forth with this guy four or five times before finally we just ate it. We're like, sorry, dude, we, we don't want any part of this anymore. We're just going to do this on our own. Yep. Well, I have someone who can possibly help you out with that. Well, he's my boyfriend, actually. So he helps me with my thumbnails now because he's the Photoshop expert. Nice. And he's also the one holding the camera whenever we do one of the field trip episodes which is really nice. He just took it one day and became my cameraman. So it's excellent. But he can definitely, if I can convince him, I probably can to uh, help you out with your logo. Cool. Perfect. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite video that you've done so far on YouTube? For me, it would have to be the archaeologists trying to be sexy. The, the pickup lines video I did. Oh, yeah. That one came out like this summer, right? Yeah. I, I filmed it while I was in Greece. I still have so much footage from there. But we were hanging out one night just talking about you know, archaeology themed pickup lines. And we made a whole list of them. And I was like, guys, we need to film this. We need to put this you know on the Internet. So somehow I convinced them all to try to be sexy and see their lines. And it, it was so fun to make and everyone, cause everyone, you know, we were all so close during the dig and I finished filming it there and editing it. So showing everybody firsthand and seeing their reactions to it and how much they loved it was very rewarding for me. That was like, I think my favorite one to work on. Good. <laughs> I actually saw that when it came out and I was still in Ukraine and I showed it with my crew in Ukraine mm-hmm. and uh, they loved it. 
I oh, loved great. it. And we thought about doing it, but there was, <laughs> they wanted to do it in Ukrainian. I'm like, guys, I don't know any Ukrainian. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do want to do a part two. People keep asking me for part two and we, we did make enough to do it. So and part two might come soon. My undergrad professor like wanted our motto for the field school to be archaeologists always looking for good dates. And it was just like funny the first time, but not, you know, for the whole summer and to be put on a t-shirt <laughs> and we did a mustache Monday thing and I had shaved just to have a mustache. And there's a picture of me like leaning on a pole and someone made a meme of it. And it's just like me looking creepy as have like ever. And it says archaeologists looking for good dates. And I'm going to find it and I'll put it on our Instagram. It's terrible, but it belongs in a video like that. Because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's bad. I think I'm like 22. At Mac. I, moving on. But yeah. Sounds amazing. <laughs> Carlton, didn't you just do a pun about dates on your presentation at Plains? All of my publications and presentations so far have been puns. So there's, uh, it, what is it? It's like dating apps and archaeology matching the radiocarbon record with indigenous oral traditions. And then the other one is recovering from bad dates, like moving forward with radiocarbon. Like, yeah. I'm, there you go. It, the first one, I think I'm a genius. And like people our generation love it. But then like when I'm at a, con or like a conference, like at Plains, and I'm sitting in front of mostly a crowd of 50 to 60s who are definitely not part of the online dating scene like it just goes right over their heads and i'm sitting up there giggling like an idiot after i like say the title of my talk and they're just like this kid's a freaking moron like why is he laughing at his own presentation and i'm like well i think i'm clever uh, speaking of uh dating and dates uh your next video that you're you're working on is on carbon dating right yes i've been editing that all day yeah yeah it, uh do you you guys use like final cut or do you use adobe or how do you mind explaining like how you guys do that or i use uh, adobe premiere pro okay so i learned how to do that i used to use lightworks because it was free and then i was able to get uh premiere um very sneakily but uh, i was able to get premiere i learned from oh, I yeah <laughs> I, I did a bunch of skillshare videos on how to do it so i had to, I had to learn it all myself and so i've been kind of going, you know, whenever I need to add a new effect or tr try something new with a video, I have to kind of learn it myself and do it as I go. So right. that's why it's been taking a little bit longer, but now I'm getting into a, a really good rhythm with Premiere, which is nice. And it's a very, very cool program to use. Yeah. I like it when it doesn't crash on me. But yeah, it takes <laughs> so much bandwidth from my computer. Like it's just, it's yeah. overheating constantly. Like I need a desktop to edit all the videos I I do because they, when they export, it just heats everything up so quickly. And I've, I've lost a couple hard drives from it because they heat yeah. the hard drive up and <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I do like it. I don't think I'll change it for a while because it's a, it does everything I need it to do. And it, you know, I'm not the most computer savvy person. And so for me to be able to kind of, you know, cause I'm doing this all by myself. So for me to actually be able to learn it and put out decently qual decent quality videos, it was really nice to have that resource. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube's like it and Skillshare has been a really good source of information for, I guess us and for my stuff personally, but it's been helpful. I wouldn't be able to, well, I, I guess we wouldn't have done the podcast. Or I couldn't do ethnosynology without YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're uh, big resources for sure. Um, is there a, uh, well, you can be quiet, Connor. Um, is there? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, Be jit. Oh, okay. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> so sorry. I don't know. Okay. Um, it's. I love your Instagram, by the way. Still dig it with Raven. Is there um another Instagram profile? Like, is there like do you have like a uh, a profile that you like to to follow it all on Instagram? Like another archaeology based one that you find like really interesting or competitive? Uh, the most recent one that I found that I love is. Oh, that's her name. Amelia. Amelia? Amelia Archaeologist. Amelia Archaeologist. That's her girl. Yeah, she's so cool. And we become, we, we, we chat all the time now on Instagram, both on her personal and her, um, her archaeology one. So she's someone I really want to meet in person. She seems really like such an amazing, you know, human being. So I've been loving following her and all of her videos. And another one I've been following is called Mummy Stories. I haven't heard. Yeah, of that I haven't one. heard of that one either. I'm gonna have to check it out. I'm gonna do that right yeah, now. Yeah, it's it's not quite archaeological, but it's uh, it's run by this um, woman called Angela Stein, and I I just met her when I was in Italy last month, and she studies human remains and their display, the ethics in displaying them, the conservation, all this stuff, and so she wants to kind of bring out these public stories about human interaction with human remains, whether they be mummies or bones, things like that. And so it was, it's actually really interesting to read people's first interactions with them, how they view human remains, what their opinions are about them, things like that. It was, it's really nice. Yeah. I know with Amelia, I met her in person. She actually came to one of my talks here in Boulder and she was absolutely phenomenal. It's actually because of her, we're getting all of our podcasts transcribed on YouTube. So that way um, audiences who are um, deaf or deaf plus can have access to our content um, because that's something she brought to light to us that, you know, this is purely audio and there's a segment of the population that just can't, uh, that isn't privy to it. And it was really awesome to meet her and then have those discussions. So I'm like really glad that you're talking with her. Like, I think that's awesome. Oh, no, she's super cool. And she also kind of kind of sparked that for me. Whenever I do an Instagram video now, I make sure I have, um, I use the app that kind of subtitles it. Did that yeah. And I was like, oh, that's dope. I, yeah. I want to make sure that it's accessible to everybody. And kind of, you know, there was one of those things where on Instagram, especially, you don't really think about it. My YouTube videos have always been closed captioned, and I've always made sure that it's correct. I always go through that. But I never thought about it for Instagram stories, for example, because they're just so quick. So it's yeah. kind of really nice to make sure that that was um, taken care of, essentially. Well, with everything you've learned in school with both your degrees now and with doing this YouTube, like, have, what have you learned about, like, you know, public archaeology? Like, what do you like most? I love when I get emails from people. I know sometimes people don't really like when they get pestered all the time from the public and from, you know, random people emailing you. But I love getting emails from younger students like high school students I've been getting a lot of or early bachelor students kind of saying you know I've, I've seen your videos I was thinking about going into archaeology or even art conservation and I was a little unsure but after seeing this I'm really interested in it it's something I want to pursue how can I get there you know this is what I'm doing these are my limitations my interests you know what can I do to kind of follow this path. And I love getting those so that I can actually help people get into the field, have them understand what 
they need to do. Cause I didn't, I didn't have anything, especially with conservation. It's such a weird sure. field to try and get into. You need all this extra prep work, all these internships before you even apply extra chemistry classes, everything. So being able to share that and kind of help people get to that point is really nice. I think that was the best thing that has come out of this for me. And then also meeting really amazing people online too, you know, with public archaeology uh, on on social media especially is such a a beast in its own way in comparison to yeah. normal public archaeology essentially you can have a lot more conversation and you can explain things you can take the time to write things down and talk to people individually get that one-on-one information to make sure that people are understanding it but also appreciating it and walking away with something that they can also come back to because they can save a post they can rewatch a video things like that yeah exactly yeah so i have to say real quick with like getting feedback from the public i definitely have to give a shout out to uh, katie ibsen she sent us i guess it was like uh email of support earlier in the week and i definitely have to say well it was a week ago that getting that email from her actually made my week because I was so stressed about the conference and like wondering if I'm not prioritizing right and like getting that email from her to our podcast Gmail was awesome. So we actually read that stuff. And second, do you follow Archaeology Gains on Instagram? Yeah, we've had some good chats. Perfect. He, oh God, we love him. He is uh, one of our favorite people on this planet and I absolutely love his Instagram. But on that note, I have to say that it's been phenomenal having you on. We've really followed your uh, social media and we're, we're, I'm a fan of all the work that you're doing. And I know like we're trying to aspire to get to that point with the YouTube channel um, and engaging with the public. So like, thank you for all, for what you do and engaging with the public. Um, I think it's ex- yeah, you're kicking extremely ass. important. It looks like archaeology gains is in another uh, battle over evolution. So uh, we're going to have to cut it short. So uh, we just chatted with Raven Todd De Silva. She's an archaeologist and and conservator that runs the popular and and informative YouTube (laughs) channel, Dig It With Raven, and her Instagram by the same name. So uh, Raven, thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to seeing, uh, you know, what comes next in your career. Carlton, you forgot the mega question. Absolutely. And... If you had the ch- a second chance, or if you could do this all over again, would you like to, would you continue to live your life in ruins? Oh, definitely. And I would do it sooner. I spent too much time kind of trying to find myself or do my own thing. I would definitely do it, you know, years ago instead of doing my first field, field experience this year. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So a conservator falls down, clutching his chest, and people run over him and try to help. The ambulance comes and tries to take him away, but other conservators won't let him go. What is their reasoning? I don't know, dude. He belongs in a museum! (laughs) (laughs) We're sorry that you had to deal with him. (laughs) You make that up yourself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.